0: Do you believe that you're going to stand faultless before that throne? Would you say amen? amen? Good for you. It's a good declaration to be able to make. It's the security of the believer. We're going to explore a little bit of that today. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter five, and we're going to be picking up where we left off at last week in verse eight, and we're going to see if we can make it all the way to verse 14. Although I'm not sure, for sure I'm going to get you to verse 12, and. You're going to find um, a very, very difficult text this morning, especially as we get to Romans chapter five, verse 12. And it, it's um, one of the more complicated passages in the Bible, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. I, I believe, as a result of what we're going to look at this morning, that you're going to find um, a, a new sense of boldness. you're going to find a new sense of encouragement. You're going to be reminded of who you are before God, your Creator, and that should translate to some transformation in your life to the degree that you may walk more boldly this week. You may walk more encouraged, reminded what He's done for us and who we are in Him. Before we do that, I'd like to pray with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you recognizing that we do not take on an easy task this morning and, and we're human mind and human speech, if we were depending completely on that, we would fall way short. But what we're promised and that we experience on a regular basis is the commitment that you've made to us that your Holy Spirit invades not only auditoriums like this, but invades our mind to allow us to see things and understand in ways that we cannot so Father, I pray for every single person in this auditorium. I pray for every person who's watching online and those who will watch later this week. God, that you would give us a capacity to know you in a new way. I believe that there are people here this morning, God, who need to be encouraged and want to encounter you. We've, we've come to church for a reason beyond singing and saying hello to people. Father, we've come to know you better. So I pray that you would do that for us. Allow us to see You in a fresh new way through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And we ask for this in the name of the One who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Here, there's promises that you find throughout the book of Romans, and I think some of you really, really love the book of Romans. And there's a popular chapter in the book of Romans, and for many people they would say it's Romans chapter 8, and you're very anxious for us to get there. And it's because of promises that you find in Romans 8, like this first one that you see on the screen, Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good one, right? He doesn't even need to say it like a question. It could be a statement. God's for us, so no one can be against you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he says that within the context of a much larger passage that we're going to work through this morning that I want you to see a little bit more fully. That's one of his commitments he's made to us, but also this one that we left off with last week in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You can see this one on the screen as well. Maybe you have your Bibles open there, but it says this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as astounding as that statement is, we run headfirst right into verse 9. And Paul says, much more than that. Look with me at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. And you can see right away, he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who follow Jesus. He says, you've been justified by His blood, comma. we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Now, if you're new to church, and I have people ask me this question fairly regularly, and maybe it's, it's a question you've asked before. Someone, maybe if you go to church and people have asked you this question, they may be asking, what does it mean to be saved? What, what does it mean when someone says they're saved? I'll come back to that in just a moment. But you see him saying, we're saved from something right there. Now, he's talking to believers, as I said. And he said, you've been justified. That carries a megaton of power. It means no fears, no worries about the future, no worries about death. So he uses this first Greek word that's in your notes this morning and you'll see it on the screen. And this first word when he says much more takes two words in the English language, one word in the Greek language. It just means beyond measure. You can't put it on a scale. You can't put a tape measure around it. Much more overwhelming, even greater than Jesus dying for us. As if that were not enough, He completely overwhelms us by this major promise. He says you also have the protection. You have protection from the wrath of God in the final judgment. So much more than Jesus just dying for you, much more than the fact that you've been justified, even greater than that, you don't have to face the wrath of God Now, back up with me for just a second in order to go forward. Look at verse 9 real closely. It says, You've been justified by his blood. Now, that is the initial feature of salvation. I bet if we took a poll, we'd find that probably well over 90% of the people in this auditorium have said that that's the first thing that drew them to faith in Christ that they could have forgiveness of their sin, that they could know what it is to not have to walk with the baggage of their past on them, that they could stand clean before God. That's the initial feature of salvation. So Paul's saying, in light of the fact that we've been justified, in light of the fact that you've been forgiven, you can also be sure that you are saved from the wrath of God. So when someone asks, what does it mean to be saved? It means there is a wrath of God. There is a day of wrath coming. But the promise from God is that no believer will face the wrath of God. Yeah, more than one person better say amen to that one. If that's a truth of God. No believer is going to face it. Let me, let me show you a passage from Scripture to back that up. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, Wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So because of Jesus Christ, we are no longer children of wrath. That's what Scripture calls people who are not yet believers. That's who we were. That's your old identity. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're no longer that. You're no longer under the wrath of God. We talked about that a lot last summer. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven when we were in chapter one. So that leads us very nicely into verse 10. Let's go to verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. He likes that phrase, much more, right? He's building a case here. And he's arguing from, greater, from lesser to greater. If while you're enemies, God saved you. Much more, He's going to save you now that you're His child. If God saved us as enemies, how much more will He protect you as His child? Enemies is a really strong term. I tripped over that a lot when I was a teenager. Because I'm reading that passage and I'm thinking, I'm not an enemy of God. Paul must be writing about somebody else. It must be those really, really bad people. The ones who commit just horrible crimes. How can he say people are the enemies of God? I don't think of myself as an enemy. And then I came to understand Anybody who's in a position where they're against God, in in fact, carrying out actions against God, doing things other than what God has called us to do, puts themselves in a position against God. So an enemy is not someone who's just a little bit short of being a friend. An enemy is completely against. It's a lot short. Playing on the opposite team. Not working towards God. If you're looking for a little more detail than that, go with me on the screen to Colossians 1.21. It says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy. Alienated? Hostile? Evil deeds? We begin tracking with that because we can think of a time in our life when we weren't walking with God. So Paul's talking here about man's hostility towards God. And as a result, God's hostility toward evil. Praise God, new hope. Praise God that the position of hostility toward God is not the last word in verse 10. That it's not the truth. Because in verse 10 it says you've been reconciled to God. Even though you were an enemy, now you're reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his son. Now reconciliation is also an intense word. Not just enemies is intense, but reconciliation is intense. Because that means there's been a fight. There's been a conflict of some type. Reconciliation can only take place in the context of a relationship. So obviously there's been some type of disagreement. There's been some kind of fight going on. And there's peace that's been made. As a result of this reconciliation, we're told we have received something. We've inherited something. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, we've been reconciled, and then he argues, how much more shall we be saved through his life? Let me settle an issue for you if you wonder where I stand on the issue of the eternal security of the believer. Occasionally, people will approach me and say, Mark, I kind of pick up from your teaching that you believe in the eternal security of the believer, but do you? Well, I'm here to settle that issue for you. Yes, emphatically, I believe in the eternal security of the believer in Jesus Christ. And let me show you why. When he says we have been reconciled and then he argues how much more saved through his life here's his argument if God has the power to redeem us in the first place his argument is this how much more does he have the power to keep us redeemed so verse 10 says we shall be saved we shall be saved by his life now saved in this case has a future reference we shall be saved We are saved now if you're a believer in Jesus, but you shall be saved. Saved when? In the day of wrath. Saved now, but kept for eternity, meaning Jesus has the power to keep you. So your reconciliation with God leads to a salvation that never ends. He keeps you for eternity. If you still struggle with that, I'm going to give you a couple more verses. Just bear with me for two more minutes. You might even want to write these down in the back of your Bible. You can lean into them yourself later if you've wondered, is my salvation secure? Can it fade away? Let me take you first to Romans 8.30. Again, I've showed you this many times, but I want you to look at it this way. Does Romans 8.30 say it this way? These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he abandoned to be destroyed in hell no no god's purposes can't be thwarted god's purposes was to call to redeem for himself god's purposes cannot be thwarted they can't be frustrated what god has done cannot be rendered powerless let me take it back into that verse again and show you the way it's actually written romans 8 30 and 31 these whom he predestined he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also, what church? Glorified, Glorified. that's present tense. He's got you now, and he's got you in the future. So he goes on to say in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? If he bought us with his own blood, will he lose those he has purchased? Scripture goes on to say, be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You want one more verse to back that up? Let Let me take you forward into Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 says it this way. This is really emphatic. Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So this is what this is telling me, church, is this. Jesus not only saves me from my sin, Jesus delivers me from doubt about eternity. I don't have to struggle with wondering whether or not I'm actually gonna make it in. Jesus says, I got you, and I've got you forever. that sets us up for verse 11. Let's step into that. Verse 11 says this, and not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, Paul loves this word exalt. He keeps piling it on in chapter 5. First we saw that we exalt in the hope of the glory of heaven. Remember that two weeks ago? And then last week we saw we exalt in our tribulation as hard as that is. And now you come to the third one. We exalt in God. And this component may not be the most profound theology, but it is absolutely beautiful. Why do we exalt in God? You find it right there in verse 11, the answer to it. Because from Him, we receive the reconciliation. He gave it as a gift. This we have received through Jesus. And when we receive it, Paul says it activates joy within you. It makes you want to exalt. It makes you want to praise when you understand what He's done for you. And then we can easily say, you are a good, good Father. I love that song that we sing here at New Hope. You're a good, good father. I know guys, my my brothers in Christ, I know many of you have a hard time, I'm not not talking to the ladies here, I'm talking to men. I know many of you guys have a hard time being demonstrative physically and praising God and exalting Him that way. But I want you to think in in terms, in context of somebody like David. Let's think of warrior David. The guy in his background has killed Goliath, right? Okay, so we'll put him in warrior class. And he's king of Israel. And he's led his nation's armies into battle. And what do we find that guy saying in Psalm 34? He says specifically, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now before we go to verse 12. I just want you to close your eyes, even if you're watching online right now, just close your eyes and just exalt God's name. Praise Him for who He is. Just tell Him He's a good Father. God, You are good. You're worthy of all the names that we can claim for You. You are worthy to be exalted. Be with us now, Father, as we step into verse 12. Amen. Paul takes on now what most theologians consider to be the most difficult passage in the entire book of Romans. And if Romans is the most difficult book in the Bible, maybe next to Revelation, you're in for a treat, okay? This, this is a hard, hard step. So you have a choice. You can either leave the auditorium now or, or you can suck it up And and plow with me through this as we step into what is considered an extremely difficult passage. At first reading, especially when you come to verse 12 and all the way to verse 22, the whole section is hard, but we're only going to really take on 12 this morning. At first reading, it seems complex. And it seems mysterious. It's because it is. Okay? And there are things that are mysterious and complex in our world. It's not that God's truths are unexplainable, but there are some things about God that are beyond our comprehension. So our responsibility is to accept in faith and in humility what is clear and those things that are a mystery. I'll I'll contextualize it this way. There are things that we accept in our world. In in the world of science, we accept certain things that we can't explain. For instance, the law of gravity. We think we understand it. We think we can define it. We think we understand what the moon does in relation to the earth to bring gravity and put us in a place where things don't float away. But not really. We don't fully understand it, yet we live among it and we accept it as a reality even though we can't explain it. It remains a mystery. God's truths can be the exact same way. We can't sometimes fully understand it, yet we accept it. So with that thought in mind, go with me into verse 12. Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This event is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. I know many of you are familiar with it, especially if you're students of the Bible. He's dealing with the first man here. And in dealing with the first man, his concern is with the first sin and the catastrophe The absolute destruction that came as a result of it. And this destruction that came as a result of the first man's decision impacted all of creation. And we will study that over the next weeks ahead. All the way up to verse 22. Prior to the fall, just step back in time with me. Prior to the fall of man, in the time before sin entered the picture, Man enjoyed the direct, immediate presence of God. Can you imagine walking with the Creator God in a garden in the cool of the day? Yes, that's what Genesis 3 says actually happened, that God and man walked together on planet Earth. I cannot imagine it. It is impossible for me, it's impossible for you to get our mind around that and grasp the beauty of that intimate relationship. Perfectly created beings with their Creator, enjoying the fellowship of each other. And in the midst of that, God gave one very specific choice to those whom He had created. The choice was obey or disobey. It's given almost as a command because He said to them, You shall not do this. But it's a choice because he said, if you do this, there will be consequences, and the consequences will be severe. Now, you know the story. Satan enter, enters the scene, and he brings a temptation to Eve, yet we find in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that Adam bears the responsibility. What's up with that? How does the temptation come to Eve, yet we're told through one man sin entered the world? Why does Adam bear the weight of it? The responsibility specifically is there for a couple reasons. For one, God gave the command directly to Adam. It was given to him. He should have insisted on joint obedience. Instead, he allows his wife to lead him into a place in which he defies the living God, a place of disobedience. But that's not the only reason. It takes you until you get to the New Testament in the book of 1 Timothy to discover that there's another element going on. 1 Timothy specifically on the screen in chapter 2. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. In other words, Adam had no excuse. Adam knew specifically without being deceived what he was doing. He deliberately disobeyed God. And you and I have done the exact same thing. I know what you said, God. I know what you required of me, but I want what I want. I'm going to do what I want to do. My agenda is going to get in the way of what you said you want me to do. So Adam chooses his own agenda over God's agenda, and sin enters. So the result of this is a constitutional change, a change in his very being what was a sinless nature moves from innocence to being infested with sin. So verse 12 says, you'll see it on the screen, just break it out with me. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and all humanity is affected by what Adam did. Now logically, a thinking person's going to say, wait, he's one guy. How does the sin of one person with one act How does that spread to all humanity? Well, here's one of those mysteries. The Bible doesn't make it totally understandable. It simply declares Adam's sin was transmitted to all. So like other theologians, I've wrestled through this, trying to make sense of it. I've come up with the best explanation I can. I'm sure it's going to fall short, but I'll give you what I've landed on. The way I understand it is each of us is not only racially related to Adam, we're spiritually related to Adam. Each of us is biologically united to him, so his actions affect us. So just as Adam imparted to each of us his physical nature, we all have the same physical features in humanity, just as those things were passed on to us, also his spiritual nature. And because his first sin transformed his inner nature, that nature was transmitted to his posterity. Therefore, Adam's sin caused all mankind to go with him. He became spiritually polluted, and therefore, all of his descendants polluted with him. Now, that's not a very popular thought. Many people would say, well, why am I responsible for what he did? Especially in a very individualistic age in which we live that's not the way that the ancients thought they thought of themselves communally living but today we live very individualistically and so we like to think well i didn't do what he did but the bible just says very very emphatically all human nature changed by what adam did now, let me lean back into evidences because we have evidences around us that this is a reality the bible says it's real we have to accept it's real but it also gives us evidences we're thinking individuals just like we think about gravity having an effect on us. So to think of the reality of sin being passed on to all descendants, I don't have to go very far to think of illustrations for that. I only have to think of my children. Parents, you know where I'm going with this, right? Okay, so I'm gonna think of the most innocent stage my children were at. Cute little babies wrapped up in blankets who wouldn't harm a fly. Yet at two in the morning, they can scream like bloody murder, right? Two in the morning, my children never woke up and thought to themselves, oh, mom and dad are asleep. I better just go back to sleep and be quiet. No, they screamed and screamed and screamed for their 2 a.m. feeding until their needs were met. Why? Because they are selfish by nature. We don't have to be taught to be selfish. We are selfish. Translate that over to a little bit older children. Children do not have to be taught to lie, do they, parents? Okay? We do. We were all children at one time. We all know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't have to be taught to lie. It's common to our fallen nature. So as far as guilt is concerned, as far as sin is concerned, every human was present with Adam in the garden. That's why the Bible can say, like in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. So verse 12, go back with me into it again. Let's break it down a little bit further. Through one man, sin entered into the world. There's something that's implied there in that statement. It implies that sin existed before Adam and Eve were created. Through one man, sin entered. It didn't say through one man, sin originated. It says through one man, sin entered into the world. Entered from where? Where does it come from? How does it enter into this planet? And and how do we explain that? Scripture says very clearly that sin originated with Satan, who primarily, previously, was a very high created angel, Lucifer, the star of the morning, the shining one, who said, I will exalt myself above God and rebelled against God. So sin originates with him. 1 John 3 says he sinned from the beginning. The Bible does not specify when. Just at some point in eternity past before man was created, Satan sinned, and he became the father of sin. So Jesus, you find, amplifying this. He's talking to a really large group of people, but very near to him, encircled around him, is a group of religious leaders. And he's involved in trying to explain to them their sin nature and why they do what they do. So go with me on the screen to John 8, and this is what Jesus said to them. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Uh, how many of you have ever started out a conversation that way? <laughs> you sons of Satan, right? <laughs> he's got a way of making friends, right? Okay, so he's bringing it to them, telling them exactly why they're doing what they do, and look what he says about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies meaning the originator the one who brought it so as a result of this sin that satan introduced that eve accepted that she beguiled her husband into verse 12 goes a step further and it says as a result of the sin and death through sin and so death spread to all men this triggered a lot of questions last night saturday night service people hung around they just wanted to engage about this thought how do we see evidence of that we're told along with sin came death now the statement i'm about to make i've made in every single funeral i've ever done i will continue to do it until jesus calls me home but here's the truth i want you to hear death is not natural to what God intended on planet Earth. We've come to accept it. We've come to believe that decay is normal. But God did not create Adam mortal. He created him and said, you will be subject to death, and he explicitly warned him. Disobedience, Adam, will bring death to you. If you disobey me and you walk away, you will be subject to death. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's the exact same temptation Satan used on Eve. Did God really say that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die? God did not say that, for you will not surely die. For in the day that you eat of it, he knows that you will be as God, playing the temptation back and forth with her. God said very specifically, you will die. You are subject to death if you do this. So according to what we're seeing in Romans 5, along with sin came death. And death is the natural consequence of sin, but it is not naturally what God intended. So verse 12 says, So death spread to all. And today... Unfortunately, even the most innocent among us, even little babies, die, not because of their own personal sin, but because of S-I-N, capital S-I-N, because of sin. It's the ultimate consequence, death. We do not become sinners, but rather we commit sin because of the nature that is within us. Jesus backs me up on this. I want you to see it the way that he said it. He said it this way in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and he keeps going on, but do you notice where it originates from? Out of the heart, meaning it's already in there. It's already part of who we are. So this sin produces death. And in the Bible, you find three forms of death. And I want you to see them. They're in your notes. You're going to see it on the screen as well. Death is one very specific thing. This is what we know about it. Death is separation. Death separates us. It separates us from the ones that we love. It separates us from what we know. Death is separation. So the first death from sin is spiritual separation from God. And Adam and Eve experienced it. Immediately, one day walking with God in the cool of the garden, the next day take on their own habits, their own practices and say, yeah, I know what you said, but I don't want that. And in that, they were cast out from God's presence. Immediate spiritual separation, death. That's why the Bible can say those who do not walk with Jesus Christ, who are not in relationship with God, those individuals are dead to God. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, he's talking past tense. He's talking to believers. You were dead. You're not dead anymore because you're alive in Jesus. The second death is like the first one, but it's physical death. The second death from sin is physical. Physical separation from this life. Adam and Eve did not die immediately. Physically, but spiritually, they died immediately. Physically, the seeds were planted, and they died eventually. They began to decay in the moment that they rebelled against God. Here's the third form. The third form of death is the death that sin brings is eternal death, and this is by far the most horrible form of separation. Separation because it means eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. The place that God prepared for Satan and his angels, those who decided that they want to be rebelling against God find themselves eternally separated from God. And it is the most horrible extension of the first. Now here's the truth, and get ready with your amens, New Hope. A believer does not need to fear death. You don't need to be afraid of number one. You don't need to be afraid of number two. And you certainly don't need to be afraid of number three. There is no fear in death, Scripture says, for those who follow after Jesus Christ because he became one of us to take away the fear. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he's talking about us, that's us, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you find yourself in that place? Are you afraid of death this morning? God says if you're a believer in Jesus, you have no reason to fear any of the three spiritual death, eternal death, physical death. They mean nothing if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. Because all death is gonna do for you, physical death, is just gonna usher you into the presence of the one who bought you at such a great price. That sets us up for verse 13. Verse 13 says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now when you look at that verse, you might think, well that doesn't look like it's linked with everything else we've just talked about. It may not look like it at first, but I promise you, it's connected, and you can tell by the word for. He's used for in the very beginning. For, as, it means, as a result of, meaning this. He can say everything that he's just said because there was sin, even before the formal law of God was given on Mount Sinai. Before God gave the law to Moses, sin was already in the world because of what Adam did. However, he says there's a difference. Sin is not imputed where there is no law, meaning you can't be a lawbreaker if there's no law to break, but his argument is this, Paul's building a case here. He says, you still see the evidence, even though there was no law, people are still dying. From Adam to Moses, people are still going in the ground. From Moses to 2017, people are still going in the ground. No truth is more evident than what's right in front of your eyes today, the certainty of death, because this planet is covered with graves. You can go to cemeteries in any city, any township, any country setting, and you will find them there, and many times there's a freshly dug hole because somebody died. It is the greatest evidence on planet Earth of what God is saying in Romans chapter 5. Regardless of your stature, Regardless of your wealth, regardless of your degrees and all the letters after your name, regardless of your accomplishments, we are all subject to death. Twenty-nine billionaires died in 2016. How many celebrities died in 2016? I have no idea. Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, Prince, David Bowie. They are great people of their time stature off the charts but they're dead and they're in the ground humans die because we are united to Adam a scientific fact that holds true a general result demands a general cause cause and effect what's the cause the Bible says it can only be one thing the action of Adam So verse 14 finishes it. We can't go very far with it today, but just a couple thoughts with it. Read verse 14 with me. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Nevertheless, death is supreme. Death rules. He says it reigns like a king. From the fall of man all the way to 2017, right through the time of the law, death is just as potent in the absence of the law as in the presence of the law. Death reigns even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What's he talking about there? When Adam and Eve said, we choose our path, not your path, God, God literally had to remove them from his presence and sent them out. And we're told that he said to them, from this day forward, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work the land through thorns and thistles. You're going to make a living and you will not come back in here. And according to the Bible, Genesis says that God put a flaming sword in front of the Garden of Eden to prevent him from re-entering, meaning all of his descendants after him, meaning no one, even his own children, couldn't get back in there and sin the same way that he did in the likeness of the offense of Adam, no more access to the garden. Consequently, it's impossible for any human to sin like Adam, yet we still all die. And then Paul does this amazing hard shift like he jumps from first gear to fifth gear. He says, who is in the likeness of Adam? This one who is to come, verse 14, who is a type of him who was to come. Just kind of slides it in there. The magnitude of the brilliance of Paul's analogy is mind boggling. He's done all of that to help us understand Jesus. And he says Adam is a type of Jesus. Over against all that we've just examined, Paul sets up the saving work of Jesus. So catch it this way Just as Adam is the head of a race of sinners, so Jesus is is the head of a new race, those who have been called, those who have been predestined, those who are the redeemed of the Lord. I can't end with a better verse than taking you all the way back 360 degrees to what we started with. Let me show you why no one can stand against you, because God is for you. Go with me on the screen to Romans 8.30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who knew hope? can be against you when you got God on your side. You are the redeemed of the Lord. After that, i got nothing left. So I'm going to ask you just to pray with me that God would seal this in our heart. Would you join me in that? Father, these truths that we have examined are not light and they're not for the faint of heart. Yet we don't want to check out on them. Father, as real and as prevalent as it was for us in these moments as we examined it, make us laser-focused in this week ahead of us. That we would walk more boldly with our shoulders back on our heads high. That we are yours for eternity. That we belong to you and nothing can snatch us. That you have a plan and a purpose for every one of our lives. God, that we would speak more boldly of this one who redeemed us. Give us the courage to do that. We would be confident and and happy with just that, Father. Just the courage to talk more of Jesus. But let alone, Father, don't let us leave. Don't let us escape here without being reminded that we belong to You at great price. That You are one and only, gave His life to buy us. And because of that truth, we know We know that we know that we know that we belong to you, and we walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, don't let us forget these things. Especially when Satan tries to punch us and take us down. Remind us of who we are. We pray for this in the mighty name of the Savior who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.